Revelation chapter 20, beginning with verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Death. Death is an inescapable part of being human. Regarding this life, the Doors frontman, Jim Morrison, joked with a tinge of irony because he died so young. He said, no one here gets out alive. Some have rightly referred to death as the destination of life. The daunting reality is that one day you will die. One day I will die. There will be a day when everyone in this room will at last be dead. What's worse is the fact that unless you happen to do something truly awesome or infamous, there will be a day when even the memory of the dead will be forgotten by the living. Renowned British street artist, only known as Banksy, summed up this depressing truth the following way. He said, quote, they say you die twice, once when you stop breathing and a second time. A bit later on, when someone says your name for the last time. Funny, but deeply tormented comic, Robin Williams, who tragically took his own life on August 11, 2013, once quipped to a friend that death is nature's way of saying, your table is ready. And I know, I know. <laughs> death is such a morbid thing to talk about. Like, I'd even go so far as to say that many of you are dying for me to move on to another subject. Because death is as natural as birth. And is the certain fate that we all share. The grand question, the big question, the large question that mankind has grappled with since the beginning of time is what comes after death. There are those who hold to a humanistic perspective regarding the nature of man that will argue that nothing follows the physical death. They contend that when you finally breathe your last, you will simply cease to be, since no part of you exists apart from the material. With death comes no regrets, no reunions, no lasting memories. 
light just gives way to darkness. Theoretical physicist Stephen Hawking, who was a brilliant man, but one with a deep animosity towards the religious, he described death the following way, quote, I regard the brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. This is a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. With his passing in March of 2018, I'll take a gander that Hawking has been persuaded otherwise. You know, for most, such a perspective, such a position regarding death is untenable. And, and, and for most of us, rejected right out of hand. And while I'll argue that this is the case, for according to Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has put eternity into our hearts. The simple fact is that people want to believe that there is more to this life. Like people want to believe that there is something beyond the grave. People want to believe that their loved ones are in a better place. That the silver lining in death is that it will allow us to reconnect at some point with those we've lost. While this is undoubtedly the case, it's also true, though, that people believe, like what they believe, about the afterlife. We want to believe, but what we believe is all over the map. I mean, it's all over the place. You know, many see our existence after death as being a mystical transcending experience where our non-personal life force achieves a state of nirvana. In fact, contemporary depictions present the dead as becoming either guardian angels who now spend their time looking out for their loved ones, or worse still, haunting spirits. Today, roughly 1.2 billion people, or around 15% of the world's population, believe that at death, the soul actually reincarnates into another life form on earth based upon karma. Now, to be fair, for those who hold to a bodily resurrection and this tangible reality following death, their positions equally differ from a belief in a place called heaven for the saved, hell for the damned, purgatory for those caught in between, to the ultimate promises of mansions or 70 virgins or getting your own planet to rule, even the major monotheistic religions lack any type of general uniformity with regards to what the afterlife looks like. Alarmingly, if I were to take a poll of those listening to this study right now and ask you to explain what happens after you die, data suggests that your answers would be inconsistent at best. Like, it's astounding how many genuine Christ followers, genuine believers, aren't really sure what their reality will look like moving beyond the grave when the Bible has so much to say about this future experience. First and foremost, while the Bible affirms the reality of death being a consequence of sin, Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. Death is a foreign thing to our world. It's not something God created, God intended for. This was introduced in the fall. But the scriptures are clear that your death is not the end of your life. And please know that. The Bible says this. Your death is not the end of your life, but, the Bible says, is a transition into a whole new eternal existence. 
Paul affirms in Acts 24, verse 15, he says, there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and of the unjust. In fact, I should go ahead and clarify something right now. I'm, I'm not a big fan of the word afterlife. And the reason I'm not a fan, because it implies that death is somehow the end of living, when it's not. Like instead, a more biblically accurate phrase would be life after death. That's what we're discussing. Understand what makes our position as Christians radically different than everyone else's regarding life after death is that we base our beliefs on the testimony of Jesus, who, by the way, is the only man to have lived, died, and then was seen alive again by more than 500 witnesses. Quite credible. As such, it's only Jesus that can declare, for example, in John 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he will live. As the Apostle Peter would pen in his first epistle, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us to a living hope. And what is that living hope? It's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, the resurrection of Jesus not only proves definitively of life after death, but it also validates everything he said of that existence. While beginning with Revelation 20, John finishes his book by providing a radical look into our future beyond the grave. Before we dive into these things, I need to articulate a very difficult reality, but it needs to be said up front. Not everyone's experience following death will be the same. In fact, the Bible tells us what immediately happens following your physical death will be entirely predicated upon one thing. And it's not whether or not you were a good person. It's not whether or not you were charitable. It's not whether or not you did a bunch of religious works or services. No, that's not the, the predicate. Your eternal life will be based upon whether or not you've humbly accepted Jesus' gift of salvation. That is the only criteria. At the end of a conversation, a lengthy one, with a man by the name of Nicodemus, who was very religious in his own right, in John chapter 3, verse 36, Jesus said, He said, He who believes in the Son, speaking of himself, has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And if Jesus couldn't get more direct, in John 14, verse 6, Jesus declared, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. A definite claim of exclusivity if there ever was one. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Peter would tell the crowd of Jesus, quote, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among, among men by which we must be saved. To this point, the critical decision as to whether or not you have a relationship with Jesus will completely determine not just your experience after death, but it will completely determine where you find yourself awaking the moment, the moment you die. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, Jesus warned of this moment. He said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, 
but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The predicate is whether or not you know Jesus, that you have a relationship with Jesus. Regarding those who do reject the Lord and therefore die in their sins, that might be you. When you die, this is what happens. You will awaken to a place of torment known as Hades in the scriptures. And you will stay there to await what's known as the great white throne judgment where you'll receive your eternal sentencing. That's it. We'll get to that in more detail next Sunday. For those of you, and I would hope the majority, in whose sinful debts have already been satisfied on the cross of Calvary, through the sacrifice of Jesus, according to 2 Corinthians 5, this person, if it's you, will instantly awaken into the presence of Jesus where you'll then face what's known as the judgment seat of Christ. And that word judgment, it's a bema seat. It's, a, it's an interesting phrase in the Greek. In fact, in Romans 14, verses 10 through 12, Paul would say, for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Same phrase. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us, Paul says, shall give an account of himself to God. If you've accepted Jesus' gift of salvation, please know that the moment you pass from this life into the next, you will awaken before Jesus. To be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. And you will give an account for your life. And yet, you, you need to understand that what's known as the Bema Seat, this judgment, it's not a judgment unto punishment. No, that's not what the Bema Seat was at all. It's a judgment unto rewards. Think of the Olympics. In Matthew 16, Jesus promised his disciples the following. He said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever will save his life shall lose it, and whoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world but lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. You know, while it's true that the Bema Seat will be the moment that your life ends up being evaluated by your Maker and Savior, you need to know what the B role, what the film doesn't include. Because you might think that this is a horrifying moment. Like, wait a second. I'm going to stand before Jesus and give an account and then like my life is going to, it's going to roll on the screen and I'm going to have to stand there and give an account for it all. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Except for the, the bad parts. The lying and the stealing and the cheating and the sin. You see, that's not in the B-roll film. Why? Well, first, it's already been judged. That's not what this judgment's for. Secondly, Psalms 103 verse 12 says that as far as the east is from the west, he has removed our transgressions from us. The reason that those moments are, are cut out of your life, you're standing there, oh no, here it comes, here it comes, here it comes, and it's not there, and you're like, what? That's awesome. Yeah, and Jesus is like, that's what I did. It's gone, paid for, satisfied. 
It's been cast as far as the east is from the west. You start heading east, you'll keep heading east, which is only possible if the earth is round, for those of you that might be persuaded otherwise. As far as the east is from the west, you're like, but I, but I did that stupid thing there. Yeah, you did. And Jesus paid for it, satisfied it, and it's gone. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, we read, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And what manifests as being a new creation? Old things have passed away, and all things have become or are becoming new. See, when you accept Jesus' sacrifice, your sinful state is replaced with a permanent right standing with God. Amazingly. When God sees you, you know what he sees? He sees Jesus. What this means is that at the Bema seat of Christ, God will not view you as a sinner wearing scarlet. Oh no. He will see you as the righteous, clothed in brilliant light. And then at the end of this moment, if I can play this out a little. So the film has rolled Rewards have been given. Life has been evaluated. And at the end of the Bema Seat, you will hear the greatest words your ears have ever heard. Matthew 25, verse 21, you'll hear Jesus say this, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And truly, this will be the greatest moment you have ever experienced now at this point at the beginning of your after death life what happens well i'll tell you what happens the bible says that you'll you'll enjoy the heavenly space enter into the joy of the lord you enter heaven the heavenly space a place that jesus has prepared for you and obviously you'll be able to hang out with him i think that that comes with the territory and you'll be able to worship there at the throne of God. In this moment, you'll, you'll also be reunited with loved ones who've gone before and how cool it will be to be able to talk with the incredible cloud of witnesses who have preceded your arrival. I mean, this will be awesome. Now, while this initial season of what we generally view as being heaven, while it will be awesome, don't make this mistake. That experience will only be temporary. You see, if you entered heaven through the portal of death, the next event that you'll be anticipating while you're hanging out with Peter and Paul and Moses and Noah and the like, the next event you're looking for will be the rapture of the church. Now, you're in heaven, chilling with Jesus, hanging out with your friends. It's awesome. It's glorious. You have no idea when this is going to happen. But it's going to happen. And not only that, you're going to see it happen from the other side, which will be gnarly. You see, the time will come. You're hanging out with your peeps, playing badminton. I don't know if badminton's in heaven or not. But there's this moment where, where there's a commotion. There's this activity. It catches your attention. And then there's a trumpet that blasts. And what happens? Jesus goes and retrieves the church. 
It's awesome. Paul writes of this moment in 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, The Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. I mean, you'll you'll hear the trumpet blast. You'll see this happen, and it'll be cool. Now, I, I should, for just a very quick moment, set this aside and address something regarding the rapture and this line here that the dead in Christ will rise first. Because this leads to kind of a question like, well, before the rapture, what, I, okay, I know I'm hanging out, but like, what do I look like? Because if, if the bodily resurrection happens here, then what am I doing before that? How, like, how does that work? Don't really know. But let, me, but let me say a few things about it. Personally, I believe that you will receive your glorified, resurrected body, a body fit for heaven, immediately at death. And I believe that for three reasons. First, because we were created as a trichotomy in the image and likeness of God. There is no evidence in the scriptures that you can exist apart from a body. There are three parts to you. And there's no evidence that you can exist as some bodiless soul or some floating spirit. Again, no examples of it. Secondly, at the Mount of Transfiguration, it's interesting that the disciples saw Moses and Elijah with Jesus, right? So this is after their death. And were they just floating spirits? No. Like they were, they were full-grown men, right? They had bodies. Not only did they have bodies, but they had name tags because that's the only way they would have known. So I think that there's evidence that when we get to heaven, everyone will be given a name tag. It'll just make things easier in the process of it all. Finally, if Jesus is, our, is, is called, he's the firstborn from the dead. So he's the example, kind of the blueprint, the model we can look at. Well, when Jesus died and came back to life, right, he had a body. Like, again, it was a very cool body. It was different than ours, but he was given a body immediately. It wasn't as though Jesus was waiting for some other moment. I don't think that we will be as well. You can totally disagree with me on that point. That's fine and be wrong. We need wrong opinions for there to be right once it's all right. Thank you, Kate. Now, with the complete dispensation of the church, Finally together with her groom, Jesus, in heaven. As we've discussed, there will be this period of seven years that commence on the earth whereby God judges the world. And he finishes his prophetic dealings with the nation of Israel. Beginning with Revelation chapter 4 verse 1, continuing all the way to Revelation 19 verse 10, John presents for us the actual written record of future events that we're going to see personally with our own two eyes. It'll be cool. If you've been in our series, you're ahead of the game. So when we're in heaven and someone's like, what's going on? Be like, oh, I could tell you. Studied it in depth. Now, as you watch, and again, bear with me, playing some things out. We're all there, which is cool. And, And we watch the seventh angel pour out his bold judgment. And we hear, from the temple of heaven, God declare, it is done. And it's in that moment, you should know that this current season of life in heaven that you've been experiencing and enjoying is about to come to an end. In fact, it's at this moment when God says, it is done, you now know there is a new phase to your life after death that's about to commence. Now everyone in heaven has been preparing for this moment. 
the last 2,000 or so years have been building to this important day. <laughs> you see the, the countdown, the clock, the seven years being completed. You know what's happening. You know, so what, what takes place? You mount the horse that's been assigned to you. At that moment, you straighten out your robes. You don't want to look ridiculous. You ready yourself. Been a long time since I've ridden a horse, yet alone one that could fly. In fact, it kind of amazes you as you're sitting there how many horses are in heaven. Then, without warning, the veil that separates dimensionally heaven from earth is torn apart. And in an instant, Jesus leads the way through this opening, riding himself on this brilliant white stallion. Following behind him, John describes the armies of heaven, which include you and me. With a swift word from Jesus, the Antichrist and false prophet are cast alive into hell. All those who've taken the mark of the beast are slaughtered. The nations who've gathered to, to oppose the Lord destroyed. As you're flying through the sky, Looking at the earth. You can't help but think back to what Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 22, that unless those days had been shortened, no flesh would have been saved. On this day in human history, the day that Jesus triumphantly returns to earth the same way that he departed from earth, touching down on the Mount of Olives before then entering Jerusalem through the east gate, <laughs> you and I, we're going to have a front row seat to witness what the prophet Zechariah wrote about. Let me read you a little section. The prophet seeing this, he says, In that day his feet, speaking of Jesus, will stand on the Mount of Olives, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move towards the north, half of it towards the south, and it shall be that living waters shall flow forth from Jerusalem, half of them towards the eastern sea, half of them towards the western sea. We will watch that happen. According to a timeline provided in Daniel 12, immediately after Jesus' second coming, it will take 30 days for a few things to happen. Over the course of a month, while the birds finish uh, consuming the carcasses of the dead, you can go back to the previous cha chapter to read about that, Jesus sets about restoring the earth. He heals the seas. It's an incredible thing. And while this is happening, Matthew 24, verse 24, says that the angels are sent out around the earth to round up and bring to Jerusalem every survivor. Now, we know of the survivors. This group will include the 144,000 who have been sealed from all of the tribes of Israel. Uh, we will know that this will include those that had made it to these cities of refuge, protected from the ire of the Antichrist. We know that anyone that's just lucky enough to kind of survive the tribulation and the persecution, they don't take the mark of the beast, but somehow, you know, they survive it all. Like, they get brought. I mean, this is an, a, an amazing collection of people, men and women, who end up repopulating the earth. That's what the Bible says. And with everyone gathered in Jerusalem and the earth restored to perfect health, according to Daniel, then over the next 45 days, Jesus begins reordering the nations and establishing his government. In Matthew 25, Jesus says that when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, he will sit on the throne of his glory and all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And we will play a role in this process. You will play a role 
in this process. Again, Daniel infers that 75 days after the second coming of Jesus, the kingdom will be officially established and Jesus' reign on the earth will commence and last a thousand years. In Daniel 2 verse 44, we read that in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume these nations and it will stand forever. Likely in, in conjuncture with Christ's return and subsequent judgment of the world. John records in this first verse, chapter 20, we would, we would get back eventually. John says that he saw as all these things are happening, an angel coming down from heaven. Doesn't give him a, a name or a rank, just a normal angel. This angel had the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And then John adds that the angel was sent to lay hold of Satan to bound him for a thousand years, casting him into the bottomless pit to shut him up and set a seal on him so he could no longer deceive the nations. Now what John is describing here is the incarceration of Satan, not for punishment, that'll come later, but clearly restraint. In 1 Peter 5 verse 8, the apostle encourages you and I to be sober and vigilant. Why? He says, because your adversary, the devil, right now, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. To rob God of the crescendo of his creation, man. Satan has been the purveyor of lies. From the beginning, he lied to Eve. He's lied to all men since. To lead men astray. Since Eden, Satan has been known as the tempter. Well, today the devil enjoys a measure of freedom, please take note that during the millennial reign of Christ, Satan will be placed under lock and key so that he can no longer deceive the nations. Satan's reign on this earth, a reign that began in the garden and ended in the battle of Armageddon, when this, again, nondescript common angel casts him into the bottomless pit for a thousand years. Don't be mistaken to think that Satan is the equal to God. Like, they're not, they're not equals. It's not a yin and a yang. It's not a, a good versus, it's, it's, in fact, God's just making a point. Like, he's, he picks out, I think, the scrawniest little angel. Like, he's got this big key and this chain. He's like, all right, God, I'll do it. And this great foe, the devil, is no match. Now, we'll also get to this a little bit more next week. Talk about these thousand years, how it comes to an end. But I want you to imagine a millennium. Again, a thousand years of future human history where you have Jesus as the king sitting on a literal, actual throne in Jerusalem ruling the entire world in perfect righteousness with no devil to deceive the nations. Now, it is true that the sin nature of those who repopulate the earth will still exist. But for the first time ever, during these thousand years, the natural fallen tendencies that we have will be kept at bay. Justice reigns. Peace among men manifests. Racial strife is but a distant past. National conflicts no longer a concern. At long last, social inequities and systematic inequalities are eradicated in the kingdom of God. 
There will be on this earth no hunger, no crime, no rebellion. The economic structure of this future world will be radically different than the one we see today. Under the reign of Jesus, this world will at long last become the utopia that sinful man has always desired but failed to create. Let me read you a glimpse of this recorded in Micah 4. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and the people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion, the law shall go, go forth and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall there be war anymore. Now it's cool to think that not only will society function appropriately for the first time ever, and you can, the, the culture of the kingdom will be, will be radically different than the rot we call culture today. But the planet itself, think of it, will function different, differently. Why? Well, it's creators returned. The ecosystem will be healed. Pollution non-existent. There won't be global warming. The world will be restored. It'll be back under the authority of Jesus. So natural disasters, there'll be nothing natural about them because they won't happen. It will be the thing of a past. No hurricanes, nor tornadoes, no volcanic eruptions. According to Isaiah chapter 11, even the animal kingdom during this thousand years on the earth will revert back to the way that God had always intended her to operate. The prophet writes, Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. The wolf shall lie down with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child will play in the cobra's hole. You've got to have a little faith to let your little one do that. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. With regard to this period of history, you might think what I'm saying is nuts. And again, you're entitled to your opinion, but don't, don't think that it's not biblical. Uh, to this point, there are over 400 verses and some 20 different passages that specifically address this time period of human history known as the millennial reign of Christ. And beyond that, you need to know how a future literal kingdom on this earth, you need to know that that's central to the ministry of Jesus Christ. It was prophesied of Jesus in Isaiah 9, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order and establish it with judgment and righteousness from that time forward even forevermore. How has that been applied to Jesus in his first advent? It's also why the divine announcement to Mary that she was pregnant in Luke chapter 1, this is one of the things the angel says. He says to Mary, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He'll be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. It's consistent 
first sermon Peter ever gave on Pentecost, Acts 3. This is what he told his audience. He said, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he might send Jesus Christ. This would be second, a second time. Who has preached to you before, whom heaven must receive, why? Until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all of his holy prophets. Getting back to our place in all of this. John says, beginning with verse 4 of this new kingdom, he says, I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Now, with regards to the they, in reference here, in context, in the flow of the narrative, you have to go all the way back to Revelation 19, verse 14, to identify the they. And who are they? Well, they are the armies uh, uh, that were coming in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, who followed Jesus on the, the white horses. These are the ones sitting now on the thrones. Who are they? Well, we've discussed that. It's the church. It's the Old Testament saints. It's us. Now, not to be excluded in any way, John also records seeing something in particular. He says that he saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God. He saw them alive and reigning with Christ as priests of God for a thousand years. And you can understand, imagine being in the tribulation and reading this passage in the book of Revelation and be like, I might lose my life right now, but I'm coming back and I will be ruling and reigning. Like that would have been encouraging. Now this idea of the saints, again, including Old Testament believers, the church, the tribulational martyrs, being charged with appropriate roles in the kingdom of God is not just referenced here. It's all over Scripture. Case in point, I'll give you just one example. In Daniel 7, verse 27, the prophet says, Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms on the whole of earth shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey Him. Again, you can find examples of this all over the place. Now, regarding the Christian's role, you and I, during this thousand years of life on earth after death, in Matthew 19, in response to an exchange that Jesus has just had with the rich young ruler, Peter asks an important question. He tells Jesus, he's like, we've left all and followed after you. What will we have? Gotta hand it to Peter, right? Here's how... Jesus answered. He said, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, you who have followed Me will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or mothers or fathers or wives or children or lands for My sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. J.M. Barry, the Scottish novelist best known for his creation of Peter Pan, once wrote, to die will be an awfully big adventure. You know, this is not hard to disagree with when you come to fully understand what the Bible actually says happens following your death. And not to be mistaken, the Bible describes a thousand-year period of, of future world history in which Jesus has not only returned to this earth and established a global government, but one in which you and I will also physically return years after our either death or rapture in a glorified body to practically serve in some official administrative capacity and the kingdom of God. 
after this life, your death, the Bema Seat, a brief time in heaven, the Bible is clear that you will return to this earth with Jesus and live here for a thousand years as a member of his kingdom. In fact, as hard as this is to conceptualize, think about it. You will end up living more life on this earth after death than before. Now, if you really take a moment and consider this amazing and, and honestly trippy idea, you can't help but place this first go-around on earth into a much different context, right? I mean, 80 years here is a lot different than 1,000 years later. In fact, this first life ends up being so brief in light of the second one. I want to close by just unpacking what our time here is really for then. First, if you don't accept Jesus as your Savior during this life, you have no part in the kingdom that comes and the life that follows. As John even mentioned here in verse 5, he says the rest of the dead, or those who have died rejecting Jesus' offer of salvation, did not live again until the thousand years were finished. And as I mentioned at the beginning of our study, those who die in sin are waiting in Hades for a judgment called the great white throne. So first, if you don't accept Jesus as your Savior, during the life you have on this side of death, you will have no place in the kingdom and the life that follows. Secondly, your place of service and the kingdom that will last for a thousand years will be specifically determined by your faithfulness to serve Jesus during this brief life. Like the idea of rewarded faithfulness and then increased responsibility as a result, that idea is all over the Bible. Because you were faithful over a little, I'll make you faithful over much. But beyond that, like this idea of a future kingdom life should change the way we read a lot of passages. Here's an example. Matthew 6, verses 19 and 20. This is what Jesus said. He said, do not lay up for yourself treasure on earth where moss and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. Jesus is saying, like, you're, like you don't understand what your existence is. You get so consumed with this life, you forget it's, it's all designed. Like I can do things here that make investments for then. Wow. Lastly, the experiences that you have in this life that don't make any sense at all might be God preparing you for the life to follow. And to me, this whole idea has radical implications for how we read certain, certain promises. I went this week to console a brother who's just lost his mother from COVID. We were standing in the carport. His brother was there. His grandmother was there. And consoling the family, providing some encouraging words. I, I quoted Romans 8.28. 
I said, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purposes. And that's a common promise that, that we'll bring up from time to time. And yet, the grandma was like, I believe that, but why do, so often I don't actually see that happen. And, and a lot of times, the way that we would address that is to say, well, you just don't see that right now, or you're not seeing how that's working out. Like, you've got to trust the Lord, you've got to have some faith, you've got to see how this plays. With this whole idea of, of the life after death, like what if there are instances when the all things work for the good finds its ultimate fulfillment in a future life that this one was all designed to prepare us for anyway? I just don't understand why I'm going through this. Oh, you will. You'll see. 80 years and a thousand. In closing, Revelation 20, it's radical. It presents this glimpse into our future. And as such, please, the application. Keep this life in context and make it count for it determines what comes next. If you give your life to Jesus, and you place your trust that His sacrifice was enough for your salvation, if that describes you, you can come to see death, yours or another's, in a different context, a different light. You can actually come to see it as the start of the next great adventure. How cool. So Father, Lord, we thank You for Your Word what it says to us. In Jesus' name, amen.